again, warm welcome to all of you to our service this morning. Glad to have all our visitors with us uh, from near and far. Uh, just uh, some of you returning visitors as well. Glad to always see you again, see familiar faces every once in a while. And uh, we're just glad that we can worship the Lord together. And so uh, if you, we want to continue our worship just as we, just as we sung as a prayer, we really just want to have the Lord take our hearts and, and seal it. But uh, part of the process in which God uses, uh, takes, does work in our heart is through sanctifying our hearts through the Word of God. And we continue our worship through the preaching and studying of the Word of God this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, t- you can turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going back to Isaiah this week, Isaiah chapter 59. And yeah, I can almost see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's just uh, seven more chapters to go, and we are going to be done. It's going to—it's amazing. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I love Isaiah. Chapters like today's passages—it just preaches truths that you and I are so familiar with. These are truths that you—you you know, you, we read about in the New Testament all the time. You kind of wonder where is that found in the Old Testament? Well, this is one of those clear Old Testament passages that just teaches about the New Testament—just uh, some familiar New Testament truths. Well, anyways. Uh, it's 21 verses, so it's kind of long. I'm going to read them as we go through the sermon today. And so before we look in time into the text, uh, will you pray with me one more time as you open up God's word? Lord, thank you for your word. This is your word. This is your truth. Lord, may you take your word and sanctify us in your truth. Sanctify our hearts, Lord, that are truly prone to wander. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that we can look to your word today. Continue to show us how great a debtor we are to your grace. And, Lord, we pray that we grow in our love and appreciation for who you are and as you teach us about who we are. Thank you for your word. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us this morning. Magnify your name. Glorify Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray that you equip us as a church to be more effective witnesses for Christ and make disciple makers of Christ in our world. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't know if you still uh, uh, use Facebook much, but I, I, I was using Facebook yesterday, and I love Facebook because, uh, you know, people say don't use Facebook, it's going to, you know, sell your privacy, all that stuff, but I found a great quote on Facebook, so I think, well, I'm very thankful, as a perfect illustration to this morning's sermon. Here's the quote I found, I came across one of our, uh, it's a quote by Paul Washer, anybody know Paul Washer? Missionary, okay, missionary, great, uh, missionary, but preacher of the gospel, you ever hear him preach, like, whoa, that guy's, you know, on, like, full. He's, he's uh, full steam ahead. But he gave this great quote. And I believe it was, he preached, or this, it was in a sermon in a context where he was preaching to, to a group of pastors. But nevertheless, this is a great quote for all of us as Christians, as those who would be proclaimers of the gospel. He said this, but know this, if you are properly going to expound the word, you must make much of sin. You must expose sin. You must define sin. You must explain it specifically so that the word of God cuts into the heart of men. And uh, his point is valid. Uh, Certainly it's a value. That is, uh, if we're going to expound the word of God, we're going to teach people the word of God. Certainly we know that uh, the whole book, the word of God is not just about sin only. It's not just only about sin. That's only part of the gospel. We know that the Bible teaches us about our great salvation from sin, God's provision of salvation from sin through his son, Jesus Christ. But if we're going to proclaim that gospel message, we're going to proclaim the truth of how Jesus saves you, then it is necessary that we would expound and talk about what Jesus came to save us from. That is our sin. In fact, there can be no understanding of salvation apart from an understanding of sin. In fact, the Bible teaches us that since the fall of mankind, 
in Genesis 3, sin continues to be a persistent reality in every one of our lives, in every person's life. And though our world tries to deny it, diminish it, even normalize it, we are all born with a sinful nature. And that predisposes us, inclines us, yes, it even enslaves us to sin. In fact, we choose to sin and we delight in sin. That is the effect of being born with a sinful nature. And before a holy God, as those as as beings who are of, have a sinful nature, we stand guilty before him. We stand condemned before him to bear the penalty for our sins. And that penalty is an eternal death separated from God in conscious eternal torment and punishment in a place called hell. This is what the Bible teaches. And like the, for instance, the law of gravity, the law of sin and death impacts everyone on earth, whether you believe it or not. You don't have to believe in it for it to impact your life. It impacts all of us. It's a reality for all of us on this planet. And Isaiah 59 is a passage that teaches us clearly about sin, about the nature of sin, and its impact upon our relationship with God. Now, Isaiah 59 is particularly deals with the sins of the nation Israel in Isaiah's day. If you remember, uh, Isaiah 59, which we're going to look at this morning, falls into that final section of Isaiah, 58 through 66, where God comforts the nation Israel with the promise of the deliverer who will come and judge the world. Uh, Last time that we were in Isaiah, we looked at chapter 58, where God condemned Israel for their false worship, their fake worship, their hypocritical worship. Though outwardly they all went through the motions, the actions of piety, of religiosity, but inwardly their hearts were far away from God. They were living in disobedience to God. Chapter 59 continues God's explanation for why he rejected Israel, why they were facing this uh, this soon-coming judgment to be expelled from the land into Babylonian captivity. Israel's sin and its results are prevalent throughout this chapter. In fact, Israel's sentence is referenced and its impact are referenced in nearly every single verse of this chapter. You can't read this and not bump into Israel's sins. And so as we look at this chapter, I hope to expound for us the nature of sin, particularly Israel's sin, its impact on their relationship with God. And yet, despite their sin, we will see near the end of this chapter how the Lord God affirms his ability, his desire, and his promise to save Israel from their sins. Whether you are a Christian or whether you are not, I hope today's sermon will encourage you, open your eyes to the reality of your own sin and your need for your Savior, for the Savior that is Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for our sins so that we who repent and believe might have that forgiveness and that reconciled relationship with God. So that's where we're going to head this morning. We're going to look at three uh, points, three outline, three point outline this today. We're going to see three truths about sin and the God of salvation. So three truths about sin and the God of our salvation. All right, so let's take a look. Number one, first of all, we see in verse 1 to 8, this principle. Sin separates you from God. Sin separates you from God. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 59. Behold, The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, 
nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. God begins here with an affirmation of his ability. Speaking of his hand, his ear, his ability to save Israel. They were wondering, God, why don't you hear us? Here we are fasting. Here we are going through all the sacrifices. We're going through all the the things that your law stated. But why aren't you hearing us? Why are we going to, surrounded by enemies? Why are we going to go into captivity? This this picture's uh, this picture of the Lord's hand is not so short is a, is a very vivid picture. It's, it pictures that God is saying, you know, the problem is not with me. It's not that I can't save you. It's not like, and this whole arm kind of reminds me of like uh, if you're ever out, out and someone's drowning near you, you know, like say you're in a boat and you see someone drowning nearby, you can save them by just reaching out your hand and grabbing them into the boat, right? And, but there is a certain distance, if they're far enough away from you, you can't reach them. You'd have to dive in, perhaps. But there's a point where you can't reach them, where they go too deep, where your own hand cannot reach them. But the wonderful thing about God is that no matter how deep you are, how far you are in your sin, God's hand is not so short that he cannot reach you. God's hand is able to reach. What's more, it's not that he's, he's disinterested, that his ear is dull, that he, he can't hear you for some reason. God does hear. God does see. And God is able to save. See, the problem is... Not with God. Instead, the problem, of course, is with Israel herself, in particular her sin. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me, please. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with the blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 2 is a verse you would just highlight. You know, you want to see uh, a verse that teaches that sin separates you from God? Verse 2 is it. Highlight. This is the verse you go to the Old Testament. Sin separates you from God. Did you know sin separates you from God? Isaiah 59, verse 2. Israel's iniquities have caused a separation between them and their God. That's why he does not answer their prayers. That's why there's this barrier between them. It's not because of him. It's because of them. And this principle is a universal principle that sin separates everyone from God. It was in effect from the very beginning for the, in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate of the forbidden fruit, at that moment they began to be separated from God. It was not because God moved away from them, but they were moving away from God. Remember what they did when God came looking for them? God approached them. They hid. They separated themselves from God. Eventually God, and for their goodness, separated them from the Garden of Eden, cast them out of the Garden of Eden. Thus began a separation between God and man because of man's sin. Jesus, of course, affirms this principle as well when he warns those who basically call him Lord, Lord, and they do all the things in the name of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, he says this to those kind of people. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a familiar verse we quoted many times. It's not enough just to call him Lord. It's not enough just to say you do things in the name of the Lord. If you do not know him, and it reflected in the fact that you do not obey him, you practice laws, you live in sin, Jesus is going to say to you, depart from me. There's a separation that is coming, an ultimate separation that is coming for those who do not, who hold, who do not know him and love their sin more than they love God. Sin, iniquity, lawlessness cannot be tolerated by a holy God. 
The word for iniquity here. In fact, there's many different words for sin in this chapter. But this word, first word, iniquity, that we see in verse 2 and 3, refers basically to that which is crooked. It's crooked behavior. It's perverted behavior, particularly of God's law. That's the nature of sin. Sin is where we take God's perfect law, his commands, his moral law, and then we make it crooked. We don't walk along to it. We, we choose our own path. We, we twist it. We make it say whatever we want it to say. We just completely disregard it. Israel was characterized by iniquity, by a perversion of God's law. They were observing it, remember? But they were, God was far away from their heart. They would continue in sin. They, they hated their brothers. There was injustice and all those things. We'll see in the chapter ahead. For Israel, though, it wasn't just a one-time sin or an infrequent sin. Their sin was a sin that was constant. It, was, uh, it characterized their deeds. It characterized their words. In fact, the description is that blood was on their hands, implying they were guilty of, of harming others by their, uh, by their actions. In verses 4 to 8 of this chapter, we see how Isaiah is going to change, change his usage of pronouns. Moving from you, second person plural now, to you or your iniquities, he then moves to they, the third person plural pronouns. It's almost like he, he steps back a little bit and does an analysis of the sins of Israel, or God through him does an analysis of the sins of Israel. And so we see this elaboration of Israel's sins in verse 4 to 8. And here's their, the charge that God has against them. No one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. And an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. And there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Uh, there's a lot said here. Many charges against Israel. But if we can just summarize real briefly. Verse 4 begins by accounting the fact that there was injustice in the land. The Israelites were distorting their, their court system. The, the rules, the laws of the land. They were sowing confusion and lies. Can you just imagine if in, the, in our court system people were lying on the, on, uh, as witnesses it would be perjury, but it would cause serious uh, uh, hindrance to the carrying out of the law. They used the courts to cause mischief and trouble. In fact, uh, in verse four, to six, 4 and 6, there's a different word for iniquity, the Hebrew word for iniquity there, a different one from verse 2 and 3. And the word carries this idea of causing trouble. Mischief is the idea. But a mischief that is sinful, that leads to wickedness. Verses 5 and 6 is an illustration of their sin, using two creatures that we all are probably pretty familiar with, an, an, a snake and a spider. You can use two creatures that most people are scared of, snakes and spiders, right? You can garden snake in my back and I'm running away from it. Fact is, God uses this picture of the, of the Israelites. They were scheming like, like, like snakes and, and scheming like spiders with their web. They were trapping people. Verse 7 talks about they're eager. They were eager. They, were, they desired to do evil. They constantly thought about evil. Wherever they went, devastation and destruction is the description. And then verse 8 summarized the whole consequence of their sins. 
that there is no peace. There's no peace. Twice, Isaiah writes, they do not know peace. They do not know the way of peace. This reminds us, of course, of uh, the end verse of chapter 48 and chapter 57, the previous two sections, where Isaiah, or God through Isaiah says, there is no peace for the wicked. See, you may think that sin is great and it feels good, but ultimately, when we continue in sin, there is no peace. There is no shalom. The Israelites were always looking for shalom, for peace, for well-being, for health, in categories, every aspect of life being well. But the Israelites knew no peace, for they were caught up in their sins. The Israelites were unequivocally guilty of sin, according to these verses. And because of that sin, they were separated from God. There was a barrier between them and God. God did not answer their prayers, did not listen to their prayers. Sally, this is not just true of Israel. This is true of, of all mankind. This is a principle that's in effect for you and me today as well. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Gentile Roman believers, explains how the Israelites' unbelief would not nullify the faithfulness of God. We see this in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? That is, are we Gentile believers better than the Israelites because they rejected God? Not at all. Don't, don't get all proud. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. No matter who you are, whether you're a Jewish person or someone of a Gentile Greek background, we are all under sin. We're all under this law of sin. And this law of sin separates us from God. Then, as in Romans chapter 3, Paul goes on to quote extensively from various Old Testament passages, mostly in the Psalms, to show that all of us are sinners. And a very interesting thing happens in Romans 3, 15 and 17, is that he quotes our very own verses here, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. He quotes, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And he uses this to describe how all of us are sinners, Jews and Gentiles. Paul summarizes, of course, in Romans 3.23, when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we're all sinners. Now, all of us, though, even though if you're a Christian here, you might would acknowledge your sin, but a lot of times we don't think of us as being uh, as much of a sinner as we actually are. Sometimes we don't, especially in our day and age, or when we live in a community where there are many, we're surrounded by unbelievers. And maybe it's so easy for us to try to look at all the unbelievers around us in our lives and say, oh, I'm not like them. And we forget how sinful we are. I love the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. Remember that? The parable of the, of the tax gatherer and the Pharisee? They both went to, to pray to all, before in the temple. But do you know what had happened to the Pharisee? The Pharisee was focused on other people's sins. He said, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax gatherer. Thank you that I'm not like him. But what did the tax gatherer do? He was one who was focused on his own sins. He saw his own sins first and foremost. Because when you see your own sins first and foremost, it drives you to seek mercy from God. Because when you don't see your sin, it doesn't drive you to see mercy from God. You see, rec- we need to recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But recognizing sinners is only part of the solution. It's only part of the, the resolution. It's like an alcoholic that knows he's an alcoholic. That doesn't stop him from being an alcoholic, but it's part of it. Or an adulterer who knows that he's caught up in guilty in his adultery. That's only part of it. It doesn't necessarily 
stop and solve his problem. For sin still separates you from God. Sin still separates Israel from God. And that's where the next truth is needed. Our next truth that we see in verses 9 to 15 is that sin must then be confessed to God. We need to confess our sins to God. And this is a principle that we also often teach, a very common principle that we teach. In these verses, 9 to 15, Isaiah switches pronouns again. It's kind of interesting. You kind of study, trace his change of pronouns. But this time, he changes to the first person plural pronoun, we, us. It's as if he's been evaluating, analyzing Israel's sins, but then he takes on and starts identifying himself among Israel as well. Isaiah himself knows that he too is guilty of sin. And he confesses the nation's sins, Israel's sins, to God on the nation's behalf. But before he gets to the confession, he begins with a recognition of the consequences of sin. That the consequences, which we see in 9-11, he starts kind of recounting what sin has done to them as a people. Verse 9-11, we read, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Isaiah recognizes what sin has accomplished, what it has resulted in in society, that, there is no, that the whole society, the, the nation, is devoid of good. It's devoid of justice. There's no justice among the Israelites. And, and when we see this word, it, we oftentimes think of it as social justice, that is how people treat one another, that there's no justice among one another. And, and there is that sense. There's that idea. But first and foremost, when the Bible speaks about justice, especially in the Old Testament, prophetical books, it is speaking of God's justice. It's speaking of God's righteous reign and rule. That is, his, his law, which is a just law, is not in effect in their land. They don't see it being carried out in, in their land. They do not see God's rule, God's righteous rule, just ruling over their people. There is no righteousness. There is no justice then. Their courts are corrupted. They describe themselves as people walking in darkness. They hope for light, but there is no light. It's darkness. They're they're like blind men groping along the way. In fact, they're described as dead men walking, zombies. There's nothing they can do about it. What's more, all they can do is they, they growl and moan like animals. Just imagine what? What kind of sin makes you get to a place where you're just growling and moaning like animals? And there are some sin in this world that does get you down to that place when you're deep down hurting. They hope for justice as a nation. They hope for God's justice, but there is nothing. They hope for salvation, but it's far away from them. This is a picture of Israel's desperation, Israel's total depravity. They are dead and helpless in their sin. They can't do anything about it. They, they are and just, all they can do is moan and groan. They've reached, in a sense, bottom. And God uses this to bring Israel to repentance. God uses the same thing 
in each of our lives to bring us to repentance. Because before there can be confession of sin, there must be a recognition of the consequences of our sins. See, you generally won't confess your sin to God until you realize how much sin has messed up your life. How much is hurting you. Sure, we can get someone to admit that they are proud or, or lustful or hateful or greedy. And many people would say, oh, yeah, I'm proud. Oh, yeah, I've lusted. Oh, yeah, I've hated. Oh, yes, I've been greedy. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you will repent of that sin. Only when you realize how your pride leads to a fall or lust leads to death. Hate leads to murder. Greed leads to loss. When we realize that that's when God uses the recognition of the consequences or the effects of sin on our life in many different ways that bring us to the place where we confess our sins. That's what Isaiah does on behalf of Israel, as we see in verses 12 to 15. The confession of sin. And here we see the specific confession of Isaiah on behalf of the nation Israel. We read, For our transgressions are multiplied before you. He's addressing the God, the Lord God. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words, justice has turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. In verse 12, Isaiah essentially confesses all their their numerous, their multiplied transgressions and sins before God. He says he knows that those sins are basically before God's sight. God sees them all. They're, they're, They're so... Obvious to God that they, uh, that they testify against them. Sometimes we think that we can hide from sin, that we can run away from sin. Uh, in fact, that's what we do. When you, if you're caught up in some sin, uh, if you, especially if it's serious, what do people tend to do? They they go run, they go hide, uh, they go find a clinic and solve their, their disorder or, or problem. We try to hide from sin. And some of you, when you're caught up in sin, you've run and hid. You've fled from the church. You've fled from your family. You've fled from the people that love you. That's, a, that's, very, that's what Adam and Eve did. They fled. We think we can hide away from people who see our sins, but you cannot hide from God. God sees our sin. No matter where you run, no matter how far you go, God sees it. So, so Isaiah, knowing God knows it all, acknowledges the sin to God. He says, we know our iniquities. He lists them. He lists them all for God. Even though God knows, but he, there's a, this idea of confession, just acknowledging where we have sinned, what we have committed that sin. Latter half of verse 13 describes their oppression, rebellion, their lies. Verse 14 describes their nation as their injustice, their lack of righteousness, lack of truth, lack of uprightness. Verse 15, the nation is devoid of truth again. And it's so significant that they are so devoid of truth, they're so devoid of God's just laws, they don't conduct themselves according to justice, that even those who want to turn away from evil in the land, those who want to do good, become prey. They become victims of those who are surrounding them, who are, who are all caught up in their sin and wickedness. 
I skipped the first part of verse 13. I want you to go back there. First part of verse 13 is a significant statement in this confession of sins as he begins that we know our iniquities. What does he begin? How does he begin his list of iniquities? Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God. Israel acknowledges that their sins are primarily transgressions against the Lord. That when they sinned, even though they sinned against others, they were, in effect, denying the Lord. They're denying God's law. They're saying, we don't need to obey your laws. We're going to go follow our ways. We're going to follow our laws. When they sinned, they were sinning first and foremost against God. They were turning away from him, even as they sinned against other people. David recognized this. Remember King David? You think your sins are bad? Well, King David was guilty of adultery and murder, right? The man after God's own heart. Psalm 51, when he was brought to repentance, conviction of sin, he, he penned this, this psalm, and he writes this, and kind of reflecting upon his past, he says, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You see, we learn a lot about repentance from sin in confessions. Confession and repentance sin are, are almost pretty much synonymous, used. But repentance there leads to confession. We see that repentance here is more than just feeling bad about your sins. It's more than just always acknowledging, oh, they are bad. It's more than just feeling that they're bad. It's more than just recognizing the, that the consequences of your sin or that the people you hurt Repentance involves a recognition that one has foremost, above all, sinned against God. Therefore, we have separated ourselves from God. And therefore, we need to be reconciled with God. Even as, yes, we need to seek reconciliation with those we sin against. It is a turning from sin to God that is then expressed in this confession of sin before the Lord. Psalm, uh, David write else in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We see the New Testament equivalent of that in 1 John 1, 9. And this is speaking to all of us as believers. It's a regular practice of our life, a continual characteristic of our lives, is if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One can recognize the truth that sin separates us from God and that sin must be confessed to God. But all these things, these two things, would be to no avail if it were not for our third truth about sin and the God of our salvation. And this third truth is that sin has no one to intercede except God. We pick up in the latter half of verse 15. Uh, to the end of the chapter. But I'll read 15 and 16, part of 15 and 16. Now the Lord saw, that it, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Here we see the greatness of God seen. The Lord sees all things. He sees the sin of Israel. He sees that there is no justice in the land, that they are devoid of law. There's no righteous person on, uh, that exists. There's no Abraham among their midst. There's no Noah among their midst. They are all sinners. 
He sees their total depravity, their helplessness, their, their blindness, their spiritual deadness. And he, what's more, he sees that there's no man, no one to intercede on their behalf. Because, see, they've sinned against God, and there needs to be reconciliation. But he sees that there's no one who will come between God and man to intercede. There's no one who's going to come in to intervene for them, to speak on behalf of them. But God, who is the offended party in this case, knowing that there is no one to intercede for Israel, shows magnificent grace, generous mercy, by the initiating to intercede on behalf of his people. Even though they had violated the covenant with him, he initiates and mediating between himself and mankind and Israel. Now, significantly, the last time we saw how he interceded, or how he, last time we saw this word used, we saw exactly how God would intercede for man and for Israel. And that's found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, the passage on the suffering servant, the, the great uh, uh, prophecy of Christ. And we read in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. There's our same word, intercede. There was, God saw that there was no man, there was no one to intercede on behalf of Israel. But God, and so God set, set apart his son, the suffering servant, to come to pour out himself to death on the cross so that he would be numbered among sinners. He would identify with sinners, taking upon himself all our sin, bearing our sins on the cross, and so that he would intercede for sinners, for you and me, for the nation Israel. That's what God did. And we see this, the details of how he did this are elaborated in the remainder of our chapter. Let's have verse 16. Then... God's own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. In Isaiah 53, we see the Messiah, the, the Christ, and pictured as a, a suffering servant. But here in these descriptions, Verses, we see the servant is now pictured quite differently. He's pictured as a warrior, a divine warrior, a mighty warrior. He comes armed with breastplates of righteousness, a helmet of salvation. He comes with clothed with wrath and, and recompense. And, he, and it's apparent from here that he comes with a dual purpose. This is referring, by the way, this is referring to Christ at his second coming, that he will come again. He came once as a servant. Now he's going to come again as a warrior. He's going to come on one hand to, with 
righteousness and salvation, to bring salvation to Israel, his people. But on the other hand, he's going to come dressed with vengeance, with zeal as his mantle. And he's going to come and repay with wrath what people deserve for their sins. That's this, this will take place at the second coming. And when he comes, the name of the Lord is going to be feared. Everyone's going to know when he arrives. Throughout the world, from the east to the west, is this description used here. Everyone will know because he's going to come swiftly. He's going to bring judgment swiftly, like a river, like a, 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 probably a wadi, a small little river that would, be, would fill it with water real quickly whenever it rained, like a flash flood. Verse 20 is the key verse here. A redeemer will come to Zion. Zion, by the way, is another word for Jerusalem. God promises that a redeemer will come, someone who will be a kinsman to them, a close kinsman who will come alongside and and pay their debts. That, of course, is Jesus, the son of David. The redeemer is going to come to Zion. He's going to pay their debts, and he's going to... And he's going to bring salvation to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. That is, in Israel. When he comes, the the servant, at the second time, the servant, the messianic servant, is going to fulfill his covenant promises with Israel. He's going to keep a covenant that he's promised to them. And we see this covenant referred to in verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, not, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. So what do we know of this covenant just in this, in this one verse? First of all, we learn that this covenant is a, it's a unilateral covenant. It's something that God initiates of, and of himself and brings to completion by himself. It's he who's going to bring this to pass. Secondly, it is a covenant that involves the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We as Christians today know that we uh, who believe in Jesus have the, the presence of the Holy Spirit come inside and dwell within our hearts. That Spirit of God it, is there at the very beginning of our salvation, bringing us to conviction of sin and recognition of our need for righteousness that is found in Christ. Thirdly, though, this new covenant involves the internalization of God's word. For Israel, you know that they were special because they were the ones who received God's word first. They, were, they received God's law, the Mosaic law. They received God's system, uh, even the, the just laws to teach them about their need for a savior. They had the law, but it was always external to them. They constantly failed to obey the law. They constantly swerved away from it. They sometimes forgot the law completely. And so God promised that one day he's going to make this so that their, his word is inside their hearts. It's not just inside their hearts to be forgotten, but it's going to be an eternal thing. It's going to be from now and forever. From this point on, from now, that is in the, in the giving of this promise here in verse 21, this promise of a covenant is given at this point, and it's going to last forever. This covenant is what we call the new covenant. It's the new covenant. For us, many of us who have, are familiar with this term know that it's found in Jeremiah 31, refer, referred to in Ezekiel 37 as well. A lot of times, we, perhaps the most that we're familiar with is when we take communion, when we take of the cup, 
We remember that Jesus says, this blood, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Because Jesus was teaching that basically at his first coming, when he shed his blood, that that would be the inauguration of that covenant, that it would begin the fulfilling of that covenant at his death on the cross. Though it was given here in Isaiah, if you can, if, actually, if you kind of neat little thing, if you do consider chronologically, Isaiah precedes both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This is the first uh, clear reference to the new covenant in the major prophets, if not the whole Bible. So this promise of the new covenant, though it was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming went by his death, it has not yet been fulfilled, has it? Jesus has not come yet to save all of Israel, to punish all of Israel's neighbors. In fact, if you look at Israel today, they're surrounded by their neighbors. People who are out to get them. So this is not fulfilled yet. This new covenant is promised. First, what's more, God's law as a nation, as a whole, uh, the, the ethnic Israel, national Israel, are not following Jesus. They're not recognizing him as the Christ, the Messiah. There's always, of course, a remnant. There's a remnant of that throughout all history, a small number. But this promise is not fulfilled, and so it's awaiting for the second coming of Christ, the establishment of his millennial kingdom in Revelation 20. Of course, when we talk about the new covenant, we, we like to immediately just jump to its ap- to application extension to the church of Jesus Christ. But it, even as we do that, and it's legitimate to do that, it would be wrong for us to conclude that God is not going to complete his promise to ethnic national Israel. That somehow, <clears throat> I, I remember hearing as a, as a young Christian, that, that oh, God, Jesus came to, to offer salvation to the Israelites, and because they refused, God then started to, to offer this, the salvation to the Gentiles. And there's, there's truth in that. But I always got the impression that, oh, Israel lost their chance. That they were somehow, oh, oh tough, you, you forgot, you, you turned away from Jesus, so you lost your chance. Now, here's the new, this group's the new, uh, the new Israel. They get all the promises that you basically forsook because you denied Israel. But that's far from the truth. You study more of the Old Testament, have studied more of the Old Testament than the Scriptures. I said, well, God made all these promises to Israel. And because with the nature of God's promises, God's going to keep his promises to Israel. In fact, this is not just something that we see promised here in Isaiah 59, but Paul builds on this in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, 25 through 29, he quotes actually verses 20 and 21 of chapter 59 here in this, this passage. He writes this. Paul's writing to the Roman believers, Gentile believers. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, something that was hidden that people didn't really realize so that you would not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, here God makes very clear through the Apostle Paul's writing that, that there's hardening in ethnic national Israel, that, there's a, that for the most part, most of them are, have, don't recognize Jesus as Messiah because, in, and this will continue until the fullness of Gentiles come in, until God is done saving all the Gentiles that he's going to save. Verse 26, we pick up, and so at that point, when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, all Israel will be saved, just as is written. And then he quotes Isaiah 59, 20, 21. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, that is, Israelites, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
And that's kind of just underlines it, and you just say amen. What God has promised to Israel by the very choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he reiterated to them time and time again, uh, his covenant promises, and what he tells us in Isaiah 59, 20, 21, these promises that God makes, God is going to keep. He will keep every promise that he has made to Israel. Now, I know among evangelical Christians, even perhaps some of you in this room, we can disagree about this. Is there a future for national Israel? And among godly men and women, there, there is disagreement. I understand. But this is why I believe that there is a future for national Israel, a future where God will return one day, Jesus Christ will return one day, when the fullness of Gentiles come in, when Christ returns, and he will complete his promises, his covenant promises to Israel. He will save them. He will, his plan of salvation will focus once again on them. And he will save all elect Israel, chosen Israel, just as he promised. See, the suffering servant, the Messiah, is God's provision for salvation for Israel. There was no one in Israel who could do anything to save themselves. Only Jesus Christ, God's son, could be sent to intercede on their behalf. And he interceded between them and God. He became the mediator between God and man. He is their redeemer. He paid for their sins. And I don't need to tell you who are Christians here that he's our intercessor. He's our redeemer. He's our uh, provision for the salvation of our sins as well. As we've learned in the New Testament, passage like Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, where, uh, where the author of Hebrews applies that new covenant promises and extends it to the church. And the reality is there's not a single one here that is righteous on our own. There's no one who's right. There's not even one of us. There's not a single person here who could do enough in this world to save ourselves from our sin. We are all sinners, and we sin against God. Jews, Gentiles, whoever you are, you are a sinner. And oftentimes, we forget how sinful we are. That's why I appreciate the hymn that we just we sang at the very end, that our hearts are prone to wander. We need to remember that. Sometimes, we forget how sinful we become as we we maybe grow into maturity and we have victory over some sins in life, we, we started thinking that maybe we're not as bad as we are. We actually are. That, well, I'm not as bad as those people over there. I'm not as bad as those people there. I'm, we're just like the Pharisees at that point. We forget how sinful we are. And when we forget the depths of our sin, the depravity of our sin, the fact that that sin nature, even, that still, even though we have been transformed in Christ, we're new creations of Christ, that sin nature still exists. Romans 7 brings out this rest, the constant resting that we have with sin. And we need to recognize that. The tendency to still want to sin, even though we know that it's wrong. The broken relationships that we have in our homes. The conflicts that you have with your wife, your husband. The shortness of patience and your losing of temper with your children. The frustrations that you feel towards your parents. Uh, no, I don't have a camera in your house. We sin on the highways when we're driving around. We say, oh, that person's, we call them names. Not me, by the way. <laughs> we sin when we think no one sees. We sin, we're, we're caught up in sin, we're given to sin, and we need Christ daily. We need to remember how daily we are prone to wander. Daily we, we wrestle with sin. Daily we need to put to death sin. And daily we need the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to know Jesus. 
And it begin, and it we we need we know we need Jesus when we remember how much we are sinners, and we need God's mercy. I want to end with just Paul's words, Romans eleven thirty thirty two, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. That's Israel's disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Not a single one of us to say, hey, I'm righteous. I, I'm, I, I, I did enough to be, earn God's salvation. All of us are shut up in our sin. But it's so that God may show mercy to all of us, to every one of us. And I want to encourage you, some of you out there. Some of you out there have really blown it of late. Some of it, you know, there's different sins. We're all guilty of sin, all worthy of God's punishment. But let's face it, there are sins that are we in our world, even just as there are laws in our world that just have a greater impact, a greater hurt upon those around us. And you might have blown it. And you maybe feel like, that God doesn't forgive. Or maybe you're feeling the fact that, hey, I can tell the people in the church, the people that have hurt are not forgiving me. If you feel that way, I want to encourage you that there is no depth of sin that you may reach that the Lord's hand is not so short that he can't reach you and save you and deliver you. And yes, it may take time for the people around you to forgive. They're hurt. But in due time, they who have known the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God, too, will extend that forgiveness to you. I want to encourage you in that. As a church, let's be loving. Because when people blow it, let's remember that. We're sinners too. Have a humble attitude as we encourage one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you remind us in your word that we are all sinners. Israel, caught up in sin. Lord, we are all also shut up in our sins. But Lord, we thank you that though there was no one to intercede among men, on our behalf, that you sent your son, your one and only son, to come and die in our place, to bear the sins of many on the cross, to intercede for us transgressors. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is faithful to keep your promises, not only to Israel, but to also us, the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are saving for yourself a people for your own possession. We pray that we would be a people who reflect a humility that recognizes that we are just simply people, sinners saved by grace. And may our message go forth into the world and proclaim as those who have received your grace that you extend your grace and mercy to all who would believe upon Christ and turn from their sins. Lord, we pray you make us effective in this endeavor that you call us to do, to make disciples of Christ. We thank you that you have already made the way possible through and in your son, Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.